You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to read together verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. For of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we need Your help to understand Your Word. And as we speak today of some things which are difficult to understand and to grasp, we pray that Your Spirit would grant us illumination and that through what is said and through what is heard that You would make it clear to us Help me to make it clear to us. And would you be pleased with this time and our efforts at understanding you and at beholding our Lord Jesus. May you open our eyes, we pray, that we may behold wonderful things in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you woke up this morning and first thing you thought to yourself was, I'm going to get up, I'm going to get dressed, go downstairs or go out in the living room and have a cup of coffee and sit down and relax a little bit. Then I'm going to go to church and just sit back and I'm take in something light and fluffy and not too heavy. I really don't want to do any mental thinking today because I have all of that to do tomorrow morning at work. You're going to be sorely disappointed today. In fact, if you wanted to get up right now and leave, I would completely understand. And I'll give you a couple seconds to do that because you have been forewarned that we are going to be diving into something today which is at the heart of the Christian faith. And there is nothing about what I'm going to be saying for the next 40 minutes that's going to be easy. So if if you're looking for something light and fluffy, you could probably still catch some other service somewhere else, the evening service, because you're about to spend 40 minutes of your life you'll never get back if what you want is light. The Word became flesh. Wow. Like with the first two verses of this Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 is one of those verses that you just tremble to preach on lest you in some way cause somebody to misunderstand something that you're about to say. Verse 14 is so profound, it is so substantial that it warrants us just taking a bit and looking at just what verse 14 says. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That is really what we celebrate every Christmas. It's the doctrine of the Incarnation. That the the eternal Word who was with God and who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the Christmas story in one sentence. The eternal God became flesh. We affirm that every time we celebrate Christmas. We affirm that doctrine. And every time we celebrate the Incarnation at Christmas, we implicitly and explicitly affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. That there are three persons, all who are called God, but they are the one God. Not three gods, 
Not one God appearing in three different manifestations or one person appearing in three manifestations, but three persons, all the one God. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. And it is essential that you and I understand that. And I'm not, I'll be honest with you, I'm actually going to assume that everybody here agrees with that. That the second person of the Holy Trinity became flesh. I'm not going to try and prove to you today that God became a man. I'm going to assume that you agree with that. Because the only proof we need is the first three verses of this Gospel and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the Creator of all things. Nothing exists that does not find its origin in Him because He created everything. Verse 14, that Word became flesh. Now, it's important that you and I understand what we mean by that and what we don't mean by that. It's essential that you and I get that right. Because this is not one of those doctrines where we can really just say, okay, we believe that God became a man. Let's get on to the next thing. I want to find out about how I can have a better marriage or how I can raise my kids or how I can be a better businessman. We need to make sure we got our doctrine right. Because the Scriptures teach that if you and I do not have our doctrine of the Son, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, right, then we cannot and we do not have our doctrine of the Father right either. In other words, if you get it wrong on the doctrine of the Trinity, you will spend your life worshiping the wrong God. And it is better to find that out this morning than a judgment day. Right? So we want to make sure we have the doctrine of the Son right, our understanding of who Jesus is, who this person is that we call the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we don't have the Son right, then we don't have the Father either. This was the confession of the early church. The apostles acknowledged that. The same John that wrote the Gospel of John says in his epistle, first epistle, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Whether or not you have the Father right is going to be determined by whether you have the Son right. I can tell and you can tell if somebody is saved by what they say about who Jesus Christ is. And if they get that right, then everything else can follow. But if somebody says, I've been born again and I'm saved, and they come to give you a heretical doctrine of the Son, you can be sure that they are not saved because they're trusting in the wrong Jesus. First John chapter 4, verses 1-3, to Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and now is already in the world. Second John, verse 7, John writes, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. You don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You're a deceiver, an antichrist. Second John, verse 9, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in this teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. You see what John is saying? If you abide and you remain in a sound doctrine of the Son, you have the Father also. If you do not, if you are heretical regarding who Jesus is, listen, you are also going to be heretical regarding what Jesus has done. You look at church history, you will find that every heresy that ever cropped up 
about the person of Christ, whether they distorted his nature or his person, all of them, without exception, had a distorted doctrine of the cross and what the death of Jesus meant for men. So if you get the Son right, you don't have the Father. Because if you don't understand who Jesus is, you're not going to be able to also rightly assess what Jesus has done. So it's essential that you and I get it down and that we understand it correctly. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm not going to try and prove to you that God became a man. We're going to do two things. First, I'm going to try and clarify exactly what we mean when we say the Word became flesh. And it's important to understand what we mean. It's equally as important to understand what we don't mean by that. Because when I say the Word became flesh, there's a lot of things that we don't mean when we affirm that. So we're going to look at what we mean and what we don't mean. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the implications of this. Why is that important? Why is it so essential that we get this right? Why is this such a marvelous doctrine that the Word became flesh? And what does it mean for you and I? That's what we're going to do. And we're going to do this as we look at verse 14. We're sort of going to cover verse 14 without anything which might be considered by anybody as a proper sermon outline by just looking at basically four words. Humanity, humility, glory, and grace. The Word became flesh. That's His humanity. And He dwelt among us. That's His humility. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Humanity, humility, glory, and grace. So let's look at the humanity of the Word. Look at verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh. Now it's been a while since we've talked about the Word, at least from the text. We haven't seen it since up in verses 1 and 2. We haven't talked about the Word. But here, again, and for the last time, John calls the Lord Jesus the Word. Now, do you remember what that means, what that idea communicates from verses 1 and 2? We saw that when John calls Him the Word, He doesn't mean an idea or a concept. He does not mean an emanation from God or merely God's wisdom or merely God's power. He means everything that God is as the Word. He calls the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the Word, because Jesus is the full expression of the will of God, the Word of God, the mind of God, the wisdom of God, the heart of God, the character, the nature of God. He is the full expression, the full communication of everything that God is. So John calls Him the Word. Now, have you ever wondered, and I did, and I wondered it all the way up until this last week, and then it kind of I read something and it dawned on me. Have you ever wondered why John doesn't just say, in the beginning was Jesus, And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God and Jesus created all things. And without Jesus, nothing was created that was created. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. You ever wonder why John does that? Why doesn't he even use the title Christ? Why does he pick word? Why does he not say in the beginning was Christ and Christ was with God and Christ was God and Christ became flesh and dwelt among us? Why does John use the title word? Let me ask you this question. Would it be proper... For John to say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and Jesus existed before anything else. Would that be an accurate way of describing the situation? Think. Think. Remember, I told you I was going to ask you to think this morning. It would be correct insofar as what we mean by that is that this person, the divine Jesus Christ, existed before anything else existed. But did Jesus exist from all eternity? Jesus proper. Jesus is the name of His humanity. 
Jesus is the title that we use to refer to the God-man. After God, the Son, took upon Himself a human nature, that God-man is who we refer to as Jesus. So it wouldn't be precisely accurate to say that Jesus existed from all of eternity. It is theologically accurate to say that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, existed from all eternity, but He wasn't Jesus until the Incarnation. Then He became Jesus. Then He became the Christ. It wasn't until He took upon Himself a human nature and human flesh and came in the womb of the Virgin Mary that we can call Him Jesus. So what is John after? John is after precision. He wants to be theologically precise. And so it is theologically precise to refer to Him in His pre-incarnate state as the Word. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld Him as the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the last time John's going to refer to Him as the Word. He doesn't use that all the way through the rest of the Gospel. From this point forward, he refers to Him as the Lord or as Jesus or as Jesus Christ, but never as the Word again. Why? Because He has now taken on Himself human flesh. So even though He is the Word, the eternal Word still, John is going to, from this point forward, refer to Him as the Lord Jesus Christ because that's how we know Him in both His deity and His humanity. So he calls Him the Word, and the Word became, the Word that is used to refer to something coming into being or coming into a state of existence that didn't exist before, He became flesh. It's in the errorist tense, indicating it's speaking of something that happened at a point and time at a specific instance. And the specific instance that John is referring to is when the Holy Spirit told Mary, when the angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and overshadow you, and that which is conceived in you will be of the Holy Ghost. At the moment of conception, that is when the Word, the eternal Word, became flesh. Before that, He didn't exist in the flesh. He didn't have a body in heaven. He didn't have a humanity in heaven. He didn't take upon Himself human nature or become flesh until the conception. And there, without any agency of man whatsoever, the Spirit of God created the counterpart DNA-wise and chromosomally-wise and materially-wise so that the egg of Mary would be conceived and what would be born of that would be a product of divine, miraculous, creative work of the Virgin. That is when the Word became flesh. Now when I say that, it kind of has a, a little bit of a shock value to it, doesn't it? The Word became flesh. It almost sounds a bit abrasive to hear it. It does in both Greek and in English. It's a very cr- almost a crude way of speaking of humanity to simply call us flesh. Sarx is the word. If you're familiar with your New Testament, you probably have heard that word before. It can be used to refer to uh, flesh and bones, sinews and muscles and skin and stuff that covers your frame. It's also used to refer to animals and to men as simply as the flesh that inhabits the earth. It's also used in the New Testament to speak of the sinful propensity of man, the unredeemed and unredeemable carnality of us that cannot be improved. It must only be killed and put off by death. That sinful or animal desires. Like Paul speaks of the Spirit warring against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. And the fruits of the flesh are this. Galatians chapter 5. The lust of the flesh is what characterizes the world and the world system of which we are a part of. So it's used in that way. To describe the animal desires, sometimes the animal passions, the sinful bent or the sinful part of us as humanity. That which has been corrupted and destroyed by the fall is the flesh. 
John does not mean sinfulness when he says that the Word became flesh. It is his way of saying the Word became humanity. The Word took on a body. The Word came and dwelt in the synapses, in the flesh, in the sinews, in the bones and marrow that characterizes you and I. He had a real body. He did not come in a supernatural body. He did not come in a body that was exempt from death. He did not come in a body that was exempt from any form of weakness. He came in a real human body. But listen, a human body that was completely without sin. When He took upon Himself human flesh, He did not take upon Himself the human nature, the human propensity or bent towards sin. He did not take upon Himself sinful flesh or sinful humanity or anything of sin whatsoever. He had in Him no sin. No desire to sin. No propensity to sin. No bent towards sin. No inclination whatsoever towards sin. He was completely without sin. But He was in a body and He took upon Himself humanity. That is, human flesh. And in human flesh He lived and He dwelt here among us. In uh, Sometime in the first century, there was a heresy beginning, and it was probably about the time that John wrote this Gospel. There was a heretical notion that was sort of starting to gain a little steam, and I don't think it had been properly named or really identified but at, at the time John wrote this, but it was the, it was the uh, a heresy known as deceticism. It comes from a Greek word, dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. Something appears or seems to be something. You would say it dakeo. And the uh, docetists used to say that Jesus, when He came here to earth, only appeared or seemed to be in a body, but it wasn't a real body. It just appeared to be a body. It wasn't actual flesh, because in their minds, the docetists, anything that was physical, whether it was our human body or anything that you would touch that had a, has a physical nature or tangibleness to it, was inherently sinful. So how could the sinless Son of God take upon Himself a human body, since a human body is inherently sinful? So they argued he never actually took upon himself a human body. He only appeared to have a body. So if you were walking along the beach with Jesus and the disciples, you and so you had Jesus and the twelve disciples, you'd only notice twelve sets of footprints. Because even though he would appear to have a body, he wouldn't actually have a physical body, and so he wouldn't be leaving actual physical footprints. That's what a docetist would say. And almost as if it is intended to answer that heresy, John says the Word became flesh. A real human body. Real human flesh. Real bones. Real organs. Real hair. Everything about it was exactly as, as tangible and physical and real as the body in which you dwell. But, without sin. In fact, it was entirely without sin. We often think of the Gospel of John as being the Gospel that teaches the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people, they read through here and they say, the first century church never believed this about Jesus. This was John's invention years, decades. Somebody else named John even centuries after the actual facts. And because the John never acknowledges anywhere that Jesus is human. And yet in the Gospel of John, we see time after time after time where John affirms the real humanity of Jesus. Here he says he became flesh. Let me read you a couple other examples. In John chapter 4, verse 6, at the at the well in Samaria, Jesus being wearied from His journey. Wearied. Wearied from His journey. That's a word that we use to speak of somebody being tired. 
a real human being with a real body. He was wearied. He had just walked a half a day all the way until lunch. He had just walked all that while and he was tired. He was wearied from his journey. And so he says to the woman in verse 7, give me a drink. He was also what? Thirsty. He walked and he was tired and he had walked and had deserted himself and he was thirsty. John 11 verse, or John 8 verse 40, Jesus says, as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. It's not that he's denying that he's God, but he is also what? A man. And he affirms that. The Lord does. John 11:33. Jesus saw her weeping. This is at the tomb of Lazarus. And the Jews who came with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Those are words that are used of describing human emotions and human feelings. John 11:35. My soul has become troubled. And what I what shall I say? Father, uh, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. John 13:21. Jesus became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He was troubled in his spirit. And John 19.28, after this, Jesus, knowing all things that had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I'm thirsty. So John, all the way through his Gospel, affirms the real, genuine, and true humanity of the Lord Jesus. That He was fully God, and at the same time, He was fully man. Now let me offer you a little equation that if you can keep this in your mind, it will protect you against a, a host of errors regarding the person of Christ. When we affirm the Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm that He is one person, two natures. One person, two natures. Two natures in one person. He's not two persons. A human person and a divine person dwelling in the same body as if He had multiple personality disorder or personality conflict, and he was somehow mentally troubled and had two people dwelling in him. That's not it. Nor do we mean that when we talk about him being both divine and human, that his nature is in some way combined to create a human divine entity. Rather, we affirm one person, what? Two natures. Two natures, one person. Every heresy that has crept up over the course of church history has either split the person and said it's two persons, or they have done something to minimize either the divine nature or the human nature, or to combine the divine nature and the human nature and make it some third entity. Two natures, completely human, completely divine, in coexisting perfectly, in harmony, in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me read something that is going to put you to sleep. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 issued a creed. Now, creeds and councils and things like that are not adequate for us to draw doctrine from. In other words, we don't use them as the basis for our doctrine or our traditions or anything like that. But creeds and councils have served through church history to codify and to clarify doctrine that has been handed down, which is the understanding of the church and has been since the beginning. And in the first four centuries of the church, there were all of these heresies, Apollinarianism and Arianism and uh, Nestorianism and all of these isms that had beautiful names, but they were heretical doctrines, were creeping up and sort of gaining steam and leading a lot of people astray. So in 450, they con- uh, convened a council in Chalcedon, and they came together and they said, what has the church, what did the apostles teach, what has been the orthodox perspective of the church since the beginning? And they issued a statement that clarifies what the church had always taught and what the Bible teaches concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I will read it to you with occasional comment, and the comments are intended to keep you awake. The Council of Chalcedon, and this is these guys wrote back then, by the way, they wrote for days with just punctuation. And you keep looking for a period, but you never find one. So that's the case here with this. The Council of Chalcedon, therefore following the Holy Fathers, and this is short, by the way, therefore following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Lord, or one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that is one person, right? We acknowledge one Son, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, at once, that is at the same time, complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. That is to say, fully God and fully man. One person to what? Nature's divine nature and a human nature. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. Because there were some groups that were denying that, the, that, the, that Jesus Christ had a soul. They said it was just a body in which the deity sort of gave room for the soul. No, we believe that he had a reasonable, that is a real soul, and a real body. A real soul. The Lord Jesus Christ had a human soul. He had a human nature. He was completely man. And at the same time, of one substance with us... Oh, sorry, I skipped a line. Uh, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhood, that is, equal with the Father pertaining to His deity, and at the same time, of one substance with us as regards His manhood, that is, He was equal with us concerning His humanity. Equal with the Father and His deity, equal with us concerning His humanity. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards His Godhead, begotten of the Father before all the ages, but yet as regards His manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. That is to say, concerning His relationship to the Father, He existed from eternity past. Concerning His relationship to us, He came into being as a man in the person of the Virgin Mary, conceived miraculously in her. Recognized, and by the way, I haven't hit a, a period in this yet, recognized in two natures without confusion, that is, we don't combine the confuse the two natures, Without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union. So we hold two distinct natures, a human and a divine, and when we bring them together in the one person, we don't say that all of a sudden they're now confused or that their distinctiveness is somehow lost. They're not. They're still two distinct natures. But rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the Creed of the Fathers is handed down to us. That's the first period and the end of the Creed of Chalcedon right there. So did you catch all that? One person, we affirm one Lord Jesus Christ, At the same time, we say He has a divine nature and He has a human nature. Concerning His divine nature, He is equal with the Father, equal with God, has all of the attributes of God. Concerning the human nature, He is equal with us and the same as us, except without sin, and has all human attributes, but without sin. And by the way, do you have to have sin to be human? No. You and I are so familiar with sinful fallen humanity, we've never seen a sinless person. We've never experienced humanity without sin. But did, was Adam without sin in the garden? Right after creation, before the fall? Sure he was. Was he human? 
Yeah, will we be without sin in heaven? Will we still be human? Yes, we will be. So sinfulness is not an essential characteristic of humanity. You can be sinless and still be human, and that's what Jesus was. In fact, I would argue that He was perfect humanity. He was a better human. He was more human than you and I because our humanness has been marred by the fall. It's been marred by sin. We are not what we once were. Jesus was in His person, in His humanity, perfect humanity. It's you and us, you and I, who are less than He was because sin has marred us. We tend to think He was less than us because He didn't have sin. He was greater than us because He didn't have sin. So, when we affirm that the Word became flesh, that's what we mean. Now, let me tell you what we don't mean. We don't mean that the, that the Lord Jesus, that His divine nature changed into a human nature. We don't believe that His divine nature was changed into a human nature. If God's divine nature were changed into a human nature, what would that say of Him? He would no longer be what? He would no longer be God. Nor do we mean that in the Word becoming flesh, that He took His deity, His essential character and nature as God, and laid it aside and took up humanity. That's not what we believe. Nor do we believe that in the Word becoming flesh, that the Lord Jesus took His divine nature and His human nature and combined them together to make some hybrid of the two. So we cannot say, well, He was sort of partly human and partly divine. That would be a heresy. He was fully human and He was fully divine. So that we can say that anything that we affirm of God can be affirmed of Christ. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He's all-powerful. Anything that can be said of God can be affirmed of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. At the same time, anything that can be affirmed of humanity can be affirmed of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. That is, He is limited. And He hungered and He thirsted, and He was subject to death. And He had weaknesses. Not sinful weaknesses, but weaknesses that are inherent to humanity living here on this earth. So, the omnipotent God had to sleep. The God who never sleeps had to sleep. The God who is omnipotent and all-powerful had to walk from town to town. The God who knew everything, knew everything, but He did not know the day or the hour of His coming. And you're going to see glimpses of His omniscience in John. And you're going to see that tied to His humanity. So, the God who is present everywhere was also present in that body. Everything we affirm of God can be said of Christ. Everything that we can say of humanity can be said of Christ. And you say, how is it possible that you can affirm two contradictory things? They're contradictory from our perspective because we are looking at an infinite God who has shackled Himself to weakness and limitation. Let me give you an example. And I've used this. This was a couple years ago. I think three years ago in adult Sunday school class. Uh, fastest guy in the world. What's his name? Bolt? His last name? Hussein? Insane? 
What is it? Hussein Bolt. Hussein Bolt. I think he's still the fastest guy in the world. I don't know. I don't follow that. I don't follow faster. I don't follow fast guys because I can't keep up. So the fastest guy in the world, Hussein Bolt, he's the fastest man in the world right now. Can run I don't know how many miles in how many seconds. If he and I were to run a three-legged race together and he were to strap his leg to mine, would he still be the fastest man in the world? Yes, he would. He would still be the fastest man in the world, right? But would Mr. Bolt and I be able to run that record time that he has? No. Why? Because he shackled himself to me. And I'm not that fast, even without three legs. I'm not that fast. Now, that analogy limps. Pardon the pun. That analogy limps after a fashion because any analogy that you try to give to describe this is going to be inadequate and is going to limp. But the analogy really is intended to show this. You have the infinite, omnipotent, perfect, holy, unlimited God taking upon himself and joining that divine nature to the human nature. And in doing so, what we see is an infinite God self-limiting himself. Redundant. Limiting himself. So that he was infinite and he was limited at the same time. Because he was fully God and yet at the same time he was fully man. And sometimes we read through the Gospels and we see his Godhead, his deity, coming to the surface in ways that just awe us. And at other times we see that deity veiled more fully than at other times when we see his humanity showing forth. When he says, I'm thirsty or I'm tired. Or he was weary. Then we see the humanity side of it. Now why is it that sometimes we see the deity sort of shining more clearly and other times more veiled as the humanity seems to shine forth more clearly? Why Why the difference? Why do we see that in Scripture? J.C. Ryle in his commentary on the Gospel of John says this, and I agree with this, to attempt to explain why his Godhead was sometimes veiled and at other times unveiled while he was here on earth, would be venturing on ground which we had better leave alone. So why is it? I don't want to go there. But I can affirm what Scripture affirms, that He was fully God and that He was fully man. In one person, two natures, in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And J.C. Rao goes on to say, to say that He was anything less than God at any moment while He was here would be nothing less than heresy. And that's true. He is fully God and He is fully man together in one person. Now, what are the implications of this? What does that mean for you and I? Let me give you four, and I'll explain these, very theological terms. And I like them because they all end with the same sort of sound. And, and as a preacher, I enjoy that when everything kind of fits together really nicely. The first implication has to do with revelation. Revelation. Jesus Christ, because He is God in human flesh, is the fullest, the clearest, the best, the most accurate, the most glorious, the most crystal clear revelation of the nature and the character of God that could possibly be given. If God doubled the number of books in your Bible, it would not be as good as Him stepping into human flesh and revealing His nature to us, to humanity. So that when God desired to reveal Himself to humans, He became a man. And in Jesus we see everything that God is. If you want to know who God is, what God is like, how God handles certain things, what God does, how God responds to humanity, you look at Jesus. You want to know the character and the nature of God? You look to Jesus. He is the express 
image of the Father's radiance, Hebrews 1.3. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. You cannot get a better, clearer revelation, unveiling of the nature and character of God than in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus could say to Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. There's nothing else to disclose. Everything you need to know about God is in Jesus Christ. He is the perfect revelation of God because He's the God-man. Second implication has to do with propitiation. Propitiation, that word just means satisfaction. Look, as sinful men, what we needed was somebody to stand in our place and to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. No bull could do that. No goat could do that. No angel could do that. Only somebody who was fully man could do that. The Redeemer had to be 100% human because if He didn't have a human body and a human soul and a human nature, He could not propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. He had to be man in order to stand in the place of men. Just as Adam represents us in his sin and his fall in the garden, so the Lord Jesus Christ represents us in His acts of righteousness and His death on the cross. So that He can represent us fully, but He can only represent us fully if He's fully fully man. And He can only represent God to us and be satisfied on our behalf because He's fully God. So in order for my sins to be, in order for God to be satisfied concerning my sin, I had to have a sin bearer who was sufficient and perfectly human so that He could stand in my place. And that leads to the third implication. Not only revelation and propitiation, but imputation. You see, what I really need for salvation is not just to have my sins forgiven. What I really need for salvation is to have an active righteousness. I need to be seen in the eyes of God as if I have kept the whole law and performed and acted and lived righteously. It's not just a matter of wiping out my sins. I have to be given righteousness. What is the only, the only person sufficient to give me the righteousness that I need is somebody who can be man so that he can live with all of the temptations and the failings and yet with no sin and keep the law of God perfectly so that he might acquire and demonstrate that righteousness and then he has to be God to have that infinite righteousness in order to give it to me. So what I need is not just to have my sins forgiven, I need a righteousness. Where do I get an infinite righteousness? Only from somebody who is infinitely righteous. So as God, He's infinitely righteous. As man, He can represent me and give me that righteousness. It must needs be, it had to be, that He be both God and man. So revelation, propitiation, imputation, and the first, fourth one is His mediation. He's the high priest who was tempted in all things just like you and I, yet without sin. If He was going to stand between me and God, He had to be man in order to represent me and to intercede for me. And He had to be God in order to represent God to me. As Job says in the book of Job, who will stand between me and God and be an advocate and put His hand on both me and God? And the answer is in the one person who is the one mediator between God and man. Not a priest, not a bishop, not a pastor, but one mediator who can, because He is man, lay His hand upon me, and because He is God, lay His hand upon the Father, and bring us both together. And because He is both God and man, He is the perfect mediator. And because He lived here in the flesh, and He suffered in the flesh, and He died in the flesh, and He lived here in the human body, then He, as my interceder, 
as my intercessor, knows all my weaknesses. And he knows what it is like. If you have in your mind a God who cannot sympathize with your weaknesses and your pains, you've got to come to grips with this and understand this. You feel pain? He knows. Have you lost a loved one to death or disease? Been to a funeral recently? He knows what that is. Have you been rejected or scorned by your family? Persecuted, mocked, ridiculed, hated by people? Jesus knows what that is. Have you suffered the loss of things because you made righteous decisions and lived righteously? He knows what that's about. Have you suffered unjustly? He knows. See, it's not that we have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it means to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be hot, to be cold, to be poor, to go without. To live and to endure, to be tempted, to be persecuted, to be hated, to suffer unjustly, to lose people, to weep, to cry, to experience anger and frustration, to experience joy, to experience awe and wonder. He knows what it's like to live among the creatures that He created. Because He took upon Himself flesh and He came here and He subjected Himself to this creation that He created. He knows, our God knows, what it is to live as one of the creatures that He created. Isn't that incredible? He knows what that's like. He's the perfect mediator. Because He is both God and man, He is the perfect revelation of God to men. Because He is both God and man, He is the perfect satisfaction to God for men on the cross. And because He is both God and man, He is also the perfect propiti- or, uh, uh, imputation of righteousness from God to men. And because He is both man and God, He is also the perfect mediator between God and men. That's what it means to us. And one more thing, I've got to throw this in because of everything that I've talked about, this to me is the most amazing. He is still today the God-man. And listen, He will be for all of eternity. That blow your mind. He didn't come here for 33 years, take up human nature, die on a cross, rise again, go back to heaven, and then ditch the whole humanity thing. He exists today in heaven as glorified humanity. In a physical body, the same physical body that He had when He rose again. And He will exist with you and I on the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity in that glorified body as the God-man. He will always be that way. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He did not become flesh for just 33 years. He became flesh for all of eternity. And He will never lay aside that humanity. The second person of the Trinity is forever joined with humanity and He lives and exists and intercedes and sits at the Father's right hand as glorified man, the God-man, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in glorified body today. And He will for all of eternity. He will be the God-man. That is incredible to me, isn't it? And that would lead us to our second point, which is humility. Remember I had four when I started all of this? Humanity, humility, glory, and grace. We got through the humanity part. And next week, Lord willing, we will deal with the humility part. And glory and grace. But we had to get past this. The Word was made flesh. What does that mean to you and I? He's the perfect revelation of God, the perfect imputation of righteousness, the perfect propitiation for the wrath of God, and the perfect mediator between God and man for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is a joy and a blessing to be able to 
see with passion in Your Word all the things that are there contained for us. We thank You for a perfect mediator, a perfect Savior, a perfect substitute. This is not a doctrine that could be invented in the minds of man. This is something that is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, it is the power of God and the salvation. It is our joy. It boggles our mind. It, it causes us to be overwhelmed with awe and wonder. But we thank You, O God, that You have forever united Yourself to us. That You are not ashamed to be called uh, our Father. That our Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us His brethren. But we thank You that You know what it is to be flesh. You are sympathetic and know our failings. And we pray, O God, that this doctrine may both awe us and comfort us. For Christ's sake and in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.